the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 7, Part 1, New World Order. Susan stopped walking along the meandering cow trail. The top of Mount Wantasticate loomed out of the morning haze beyond the eastern hills. Aaron always called it her mountain. It was the visible edge of New Hampshire, and a reminder of the world she had been planning to get back to. She still kicked herself for not being ready to run across the river with Byron and Owen. Doing so might have ruined any future deals for medical supplies for Byron's group, but not doing so marooned her in Vermont for longer. Shively was so sure patrols wouldn't see him, she thought. They've stepped up patrols along the river, probably because of him. I haven't been able to get close to the border for weeks. She chafed at being short on plans and options. Was this some kind of trick? asked Aaron. She stood with her hands on her hips, in that impatient and offended look that comes so naturally to fourteen-year-olds. Huh? Uh, a uh, uh, what? Susan blinked as her mind snapped back to reality. You said we were going hunting, but you're just staring at your mountain. Is that why you wanted to come up this way? I practiced with this silly stick for weeks to go hunting, not stand around while you pined over your lost true love. There were so many accusations in that short burst. Which should she address first? Well, don't get all sassy, said Susan. I did bring you this way to hunt. The male woodchucks are out of hibernation. I saw two foraging on the other side of this hill. No, I did not come up here to look at any mountains. Just your mountain, said Aaron with a mischievous grin. Susan ignored the bait. And I was not pining and nobody but you ever said anything about true love. Pfft, right, snarked Aaron. When you're ready to talk, I'll be here for you. Never mind, Susan rolled her eyes. Let's get going. Yesterday, when I was over that ridge, I saw two woodchucks. I think they were staking out territory for the spring. One of them is bound to still be there. The two women resumed walking along the narrow cow path through the high pasture. At the fence along the edge of the hillside pasture, Susan stopped to listen for sounds coming through the woods. She held a finger to her lips. They're not graceful. Listen for rustling in the leaf litter, she whispered. They walked slowly into the woods. Susan took pains to avoid twigs and choosing her steps carefully. Speed wasn't the goal. Stealth was. She prided herself on being able to tiptoe when she was hunting. She cringed at the crunching sounds Aaron made behind her. Shh, Susan admonished. We need to be totally quiet. I'm being as quiet as I can, Aaron snapped. It's not me. It's these leaves. Okay, yes, you are doing pretty good, said Susan in her diplomatic voice. It didn't take much to rub a teen girl the wrong way. Let's see what we can do about those leaves. First, look for spots where the leaves are already laying flat. Less airspace to make the crunch. Then, try walking so that you put your toes down first and then roll your heel down instead of landing flat, like this. 
Susan took three exaggerated steps to demonstrate. If we're going to surprise them, they can't hear us coming. Okay, okay, uh, like this? Aaron mimicked Susan's steps. Aaron's technique was only marginally better. Excellent. You're a fast learner. Susan knew that a bit of praise went a long way. Okay, let's go surprise some woodchucks. The two of them moved slowly down the other side of the hill, zigzagging randomly. Despite walking nearly a mile, they didn't see any movement, aside from the occasional chickadee or nuthatch. They were almost down to the stream and the highway, when they both heard a rustle in the forest floor leaves. Aaron shot a glance at Susan with a look of high expectation. Susan nodded and smiled. They moved down the slope more carefully, hiding behind the trees, pausing to listen. They heard some decidedly unstealthy rustling of leaves. About thirty feet ahead of them, two woodchucks faced off, shuffling sideways around an imaginary circle. Both bristled to intimidate the other. Neither looked especially eager for a fight or a retreat. Susan gestured for Aaron to get her stick in hand and ready. Just like we practiced, Susan mouthed voicelessly. Aaron nodded. Her eyes looked serious and nervous. Susan leaned close to Aaron's ear. Remember, they're not as fragile as rabbits. If you hit him, you mean when? Aaron corrected her. Yes, when? You'll only stun or disorient him. You have to run up fast and clunk him on the head, hard. Aaron nodded solemnly. Death and bringing home food for her family were serious topics. Both women slowly cocked their throwing arms behind their backs, waiting for the prime moment to launch their hunting sticks. Susan hoped Aaron would score a hit and her own stick wouldn't be needed. The two woodchucks shuffled and circled, making enough racket to have never heard the hunters whispering. Finally, the downslope animal charged at the other. The upslope animal reared up on his hind legs, as if to strike, but turned and ran away. The winning woodchuck stood in place for a moment, as if unsure what to do with his victory. Susan nodded. Aaron let her stick fly with all the strength she could muster. Her stick twirled horizontally toward the big rodent. The extra power caused her throw to go high and left. It flew over the woodchuck's head and landed in the leaf litter a dozen feet beyond. Aaron pulled in a big breath to scream at her displeasure, but Susan shushed her and pointed. The startled animal bounded several yards down the slope, then turned to see what caused the noise. It stood on its hind legs to search for a source. Susan launched her stick. It caught the critter flat across its side. He tumbled over. Get him! shouted Susan. They both ran to the animal as it flailed on its back amid the leaves. I don't see my stick, Susan said. She had nothing handy with which to club the woodchuck. She wasn't about to grab the animal with her hands and try to stab it with her knife. Those long yellow incisors could chop off a finger. As Susan approached, the creature was regaining its footing. In a desperate move, Susan kicked it, sending the brown ball of fur rolling down the slope. I found mine, Aaron said as she ran toward the dazed animal. She reeled back and smacked it hard above its eyes. Rather unceremoniously, it simply rolled on its side, motionless. Woohoo! Susan shouted. You got him! I totally missed him! 
Aaron protested with an angry pout. Bah, this was teamwork. You distracted him, I hit him, and then you finished him off. Aaron studied the lifeless furry shape at her feet. Hmm, yeah, we got him. Dad will be so shocked, I'm actually bringing home something. Susan smiled. Nathan's first wife and children died in the riots in Baltimore shortly after the grid collapsed. He had let Aaron and her mother and brother, a homeless family, stay in his house. It didn't take long for Heather and Nathan to develop feelings for each other. At the insistence of Nathan's uncle, Rupert, they married in a rather ad hoc ceremony conducted by the Ames family patriarch, Elijah. He presided over his clan as the de facto pastor, conducting worship services in his living room each Sunday morning. This was the first time Susan heard Aaron refer to Nathan as Dad. Wait, Aaron paused. If we both got him, who gets to take him home for supper? She held the dead animal up by one back paw. He was long and thin, as woodchucks go. Susan laughed at the dilemma. Woodchucks usually lost nearly half their weight during hibernation, so there wouldn't be much to share. She was about to suggest a Solomon-like compromise when the sound of an automobile engine caught her attention. Instinctively, she crouched down. Only government officials or the military had access to gasoline. Neither bode well. Someone's coming. Get down. Cover him up with leaves. They both chose a tree that would shield them from view from the highway. A white suburban rolled into view around the wide bend. Why are they going so slowly? Susan wondered. The suburban coasted to a stop in the middle of the road, less than fifty yards away. Have they seen us? If they're military, hiding looks like we're up to something sketchy. Should we step out and say hi and act innocent? We are innocent, Susan thought. We don't have to claim that woodchuck. It's back under those leaves. We don't have any guns. Oh, except my revolver. Okay, we stay hidden unless they call. Three men stepped out of the vehicle. The driver was a small man, thin and balding. The front passenger held a bound set of large sheets of paper. The man who stepped out of the back door was a tall man with a long black coat. From the way the balding man was pointing to the various hills and the other two men studied the big pages, it was pretty clear to Susan that they didn't stop because they saw her and Aaron. In the quiet of the forest, their voices carried. Over there are some dairy farms that are still producing milk, said the balding man. Back that way is a grain farm, 43 acres. They grew corn last year. Up that way is a hay farm. They left the engine running, Susan mused to herself. Who, in times like these, walks off and leaves their engine running? Good God, complained the tall man. This is the bleakest, emptiest, godforsakenest wasteland I've ever seen. There is nothing here. That last town? Uh, Wilmington, sir. Whatever. I've seen blighted neighborhoods with more to offer than that. There is nothing else around here for miles. This district is virtually nothing. Well, it's certainly nothing like your Chicago said the balding man in a fawning tone. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, we don't have your city's sophistication and culture, of course. 
but do grow most of our own food. Uh, we're rather proud that we require only one-fourth as much of the federal aid as the average— Yes, yes, interrupted the tall man. That's going to change. It's time to ramp things up. These idlers are going to do more than simply consume less. They're going to give back to the needy people of this nation. Time to crack some whips. The man pounded his fist into his other palm. Lay down some serious rules. Tighten things up. Turn this dump hole backwater into a pilot project I can climb out on. We have a few more stops before Brattleboro, said the man with the maps. Uh, we'd better get going. The three men climbed back into the Suburban. The door slams echoed off the hills. The big SUV slowly resumed its course down the highway. Once entirely out of sight, Aaron said, I don't know why, but that gave me the creeps. I think we'd better tell somebody about this. Hmm, mused Sandy. I bet it has something to do with this. She reached sideways to grab a paper on the corner of the counter. She handed it to Susan. A couple of ladies were going door to door delivering these. They came while you were out hunting. You read. I've got to keep an eye on this pot. Attention all residents, the flyer's headline read. Your presence is required in Brattleboro on Friday at 11 a.m. This is a mandatory meeting ordered by the governor and the new federal regional director, Jabal Balem. Everyone is required to attend. Susan instantly pictured a crowded meeting in a school auditorium, packed to the rafters with people. No windows, no air, no quick way out. Was this an announcement of a crackdown? Were they planning to arrest her for supporting the rebels? Uh, what's all this about? asked Susan. She took a step sideways to stand near the window. Uh, the two ladies handing these out didn't have much to add, but they did say it's supposed to be some sort of good news thing. Since when is a good news meeting mandatory? Sandy shrugged. Yeah, that's all they said. She turned back to her stove and stirred a tall pot. The last of that year's maple sap was boiling at that rising foam stage, almost the right thickness for syrup. Paul entered the kitchen from the side door. He scraped his boots across the dirty rubber mat. It was hard to say which got cleaner. Did you see this? Susan held the flyer up toward him as he walked past her to the percolator atop the cook stove. Paul nodded as he poured a cup of acorn coffee. He poured a cup for Susan, too, and gestured for her to join him at the table. She sat near the windows. Lately, she preferred to sit near the windows. Sandy was busy watching her syrup so it wouldn't boil over. She wasn't paying much attention to anything or anyone else in the room. Nonetheless, Susan wanted to be careful. She didn't know how much Sandy knew or wanted to know. Susan lowered her voice. Do you think Shively got caught or something? That's why they're cracking down? He was so cocksure that no one would see him. Paul shrugged but shook his head. He didn't seem to think so. What if they went back and found all of our snowshoe prints and traced them back to the island? Then they'd see the Prince of Byron and Owen coming from New Hampshire. It would look like a smuggling operation. Paul peered over his bug 
and raised one eyebrow. Okay, okay, it sort of was a smuggling operation, but you know what I mean, she whispered. She glanced back at Sandy, who continued to stare at her pot. Susan still chastised herself for being paralyzed with indecision and not running off with Byron and Owen when she had the chance. Now it looked like that had been her only chance. The border was already more tightly closed. The words of the tall man suggested that it would get worse. I could use a little help now, Sandy called over her shoulder. Susan rushed over to the counter. She had become familiar with the urgency of bottling the syrup when it had boiled down to just the right consistency. Pour it off too soon, and the syrup had too much water in it, making it prone to mold in storage. Pour it off too late, and the syrup was prone to crystallize during storage. Timing was the key. Susan held the metal funnel over the first jar while Sandy slowly poured the granular brown foam from the pot. The foam quickly settled into a clear golden liquid. They repeated the process until all five of the pint jars were filled. Ah, glad I got this done today, said Sandy, as she gingerly licked the hot wooden spoon. Sounds like we'll be in town pretty near all day tomorrow. Better give your cows some extra hay tomorrow morning, Paul. Yeah, never know. The extended family Ames clan and guest rode from Five Corners to town on the hay wagon, pulled by Nathan's two horses. The roads were full of other horse-drawn vehicles, both purpose-built and improvised. There were also people on foot and people on horseback. The Ames wagon waited its turn in line. The primary checkpoint into Brattleboro, from the west, was situated where Western Ave crosses over I-91. Only a few roads crossed the highway, creating handy bottlenecks. The interstate highway formed a policeable security boundary around the town. Guards watched the highway for people trying to circumvent the checkpoints. When it was their turn, Nathan stated his name and that the wagon was full of family from five corners. The man with the blue armband checked the names he had on his thick stack of papers, bound at the top by a big spring clip. The man called out the names he had on his list, while two other men with blue armbands and black AR-15s stood atop the retaining wall to watch. Must be something important going on in town today, Susan thought. Most I've seen before is a single armed guard. Despite Paul's quiet assurance, she worried that the authorities were looking for her. People on the wagon said here or yes when the man with the papers called their name. Names matched up, except for Nathan's wife's name, Deanne. Deanne and Josh died in the fires and riots in Baltimore back in October. When the man called out Deanne, Nathan introduced Heather simply as my wife. Heather gave a nervous little wave. Similarly, when Nathan's son's name was read off, it was Blake's turn to smile and wave. The man questioned the absence of the Ames's patriarch, Elijah. Nathan explained that his father was in his 80s and in no condition to travel. In reality, Elijah was quite healthy, but opted to stay back to guard five corners. 
the man with the blue armband didn't question Susan or Aaron's presence. He poked among their bags and looked the wagon over. The authorities appeared to be looking for absences or contraband, not extra attendees. The man counted out ten little squares of yellow paper with a star stamped on them. Nathan handed them out. Susan blew out a sigh of relief. She had her pass for the day without having to answer any questions. Close to the center of town, Nathan pulled the horses to a stop where Elm Street met Canal Street. He stood on the bench seat. I don't see a good place to tie off the wagon down there. Getting pretty crowded already. There's some weeds and grass back there by the bridge. The horses need something to eat. Let's tie up here. Go on ahead on foot. Uncle Rupert volunteered to stay with the horses and wagon. He didn't like trips into town. His imposing size and sour expression usually dissuade any mischief-makers or horse-thieves. An unmarked semi-trailer had been parked across both lanes of the street that led to the bridge. Susan cringed inside at the memory of her bold and foolhardy plan to run across that bridge with Heather, Aaron, and Blake. The bridge loomed up over the river like a monument to her lousy leadership. Ladders and some hastily constructed wooden railing around the top of the trailer turned it into a high, improvised stage. At each end of the trailer's roof stood a tall black loudspeaker. The uphill slope of the broad and irregular intersection of Canal, Vernon, Main, and Bridge Streets created a sort of paved amphitheater facing the trailer stage. Susan breathed out a little sigh of relief. They would be outside and not jammed into some auditorium. Whatever the mandatory good news was, it would be a big open-air venue, which was much more to her liking. The pavement nearest the trailer stage was already packed with people. Some stood, others expected a long wait or long speeches. They sat on bundles that they brought with them. Trips to town usually became all-day ventures. Packed bags were a common sight. Nathan suggested that they settle in along the southern side of Canal Street, across from the co-op. There's lots of room up front, said Blake. Nathan restrained Blake with a hand on his shoulder. This ought to be close enough to hear whatever they're saying, but not so thick in the middle of everyone. You, you expect trouble? asked Heather. Yeah, not that so much, said Nathan. All these seem to be local folk, from the look of them. They're too underfed to make much trouble. I'm thinking more about being able to get out of this quicker when it's all over, uh, whatever this is. Oh, look. Susan stood on her toes and pointed to the corner of Vernon Street. There's Adele. See, see her, Heather? Gray coat, brown, and a yellow scarf? Yoo-hoo! Adele! Up here! Susan waved her arms. She surprised herself at her enthusiasm at seeing someone she knew, even if not all that well. Adele had been Susan and Heather's easy entry through the checkpoints into Brattleboro when they first arrived. She was prone to talk one's arm off, but being a familiar face made her more of a friend than anyone else that she had seen in the crowd. Adele's face lit up at the potential audience. She waved and hurried her pace up the street. She carried a big flower-print bundle on her back. 
She moved against the general downhill flow of pedestrians with a wide receiver's nimbleness. Hey, you can almost see your entire mountain from here, Aaron whispered out of the side of her mouth. She smiled impishly, expecting to get a rise out of Susan. Susan ignored the taunt. Hi, Adele. Great to see you again. Uh, you must be exhausted from coming all the way up from Vernon. Adele's wide smile quickly dropped into a well-practiced, dour, and exhausted look. Her wide receiver motions morphed into a stooped posture with small, shuffling steps. Oh, dearie, it's so good to see you again, too. These old bones can't take these long journeys. They'd better have a darn good reason for making a poor old sick widow travel all this way. No one had asked how Adele was feeling, but she answered that unasked question with a long list of ailments, nonetheless. You're looking pretty good, said Adele. Getting by okay out there on the farm? Um, yeah. Susan lowered her voice and looked around. She hoped others weren't paying attention. Being relatively well-fed was apt to cause envy and questions. The people who stayed in town were totally dependent on the government's insufficient aid programs and tended to be resentful of those who weren't also dependent. Contribution days brought some food in from the countryside, though clearly not enough. Susan needed to redirect the conversation. Yeah, have you seen Simone yet? Adele launched into the background of her long friendship with Simone, even though she had told Susan all about it several times before. She went on to detail all of the poor life choices that Simone had made, in Adele's opinion. While Adele rambled on about Simone's late husband's many sins, Susan peered over Adele's head to indulge in some people-watching. The lack of wind and the morning sun had made the early spring day reasonably comfortable. Without their bulky winter coats and hats, she could see that shirt sleeves often hung down over their hands, pants dragged on the ground or were cuffed, double-cuffed, to expose thin ankles. Eyes were sunken and cheekbones prominent. Winter scarcities had taken a visible toll. Susan pulled her hat down a little. She felt a flush of embarrassment that her group didn't look so emaciated. She hoped no one else was people-watching like she was and noticed the Ames clan's relative health. In her scanning of the crowd, Susan spotted Douglas amid some other people on Main Street. He stood alone. She nudged Paul and pointed. Paul nodded. It was best that they not be seen associating with him. Douglas worried about the townies suspecting him of aiding insurgents. Better not to give the rumor mill new grist. Paul bumped Susan's elbow and tipped his head downhill and to the right. A human caramel apple stood at the back of the crowd in the small park at the corner of Canal and Vernon Streets. He's here, whispered Susan. She was careful to avoid Shivley's name out loud. Guess they didn't catch him after all. Paul gave her a little glance of irony. Well, duh. Susan corrected herself. He's right down there. What I meant was, he must not have felt too threatened or endangered or anything, or he wouldn't be out here in the public. Still, they must have found something, or they wouldn't have stepped up patrols. Do you think maybe the feds did catch him, but let him go? 
Paul shrugged and shook his head. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to tell. Susan interpreted Paul's gestures. Maybe they didn't catch him. Maybe they did. But he pulled some strings, you know, connections. What if they didn't catch him, but he went in voluntarily to report on the trade? That would make them step up patrols, right? Paul gave her a slightly exasperated look. Okay, okay, you're right. Too many theories, not enough facts. Susan pointed to the stage. Hey, something's happening. Chapter 7 turned out to be a long one, too, clocking in at 59 minutes before editing, so it's a two-parter, too. This time, I edited all the way through before picking out where to make the break. It's been a hot and muggy summer here, not as hot as things are in the South nowadays, but hot for New Hampshire. It's also been a pretty wet summer, too, with almost more rainy days than dry. But I got what I can done on those dry days. One project that's been keeping me busy on those dry days has been a makeover of my new-to-me pickup. It's been quite the saga, but today was something of a milestone. I'm working on a blog post about my truck saga. I'll post that on my Buy Me a Coffee page and Patreon, so you members can read and see what's been keeping me busy this summer. I hope you're all having a great summer. Mark, I hope you get some rain for your crops, and it's really too bad I can't send you some of my excess rain. I'll be back next week with part two. <laughs>